And we are on a journey through the Gospel of Matthew. And the series is titled Incomparable. And today we are in Matthew chapter 26. And our sermon is titled Swords and Lords. Swords and Lords. And I want to thank Brittany for that absolutely beautiful prayer, beautiful testimonies. Where's Graham Bernard at? Graham, where are you at? Did he run? Okay, Graham's back on the sound desk. Graham, I want to thank you for, for representing the men. There was a whole lot of beautiful testimonies there, and there was a whole lot of femininity in those testimonies. But somebody brought the masculine witness, and Graham, that was you. I want to thank you. I, presumably, there are other men here that have testimonies that they could share if time allowed. Any men out there that have a testimony, they, I won't make you, but, but you actually could share if a gun was held to your head. Cedric? Okay, Lance? Okay, great. Okay, great. All right, there are like six of us. And how about the women that have a testimony? If time allowed, you'd have a testimony you could share. Yeah, it's like all of them. Okay, so we're working on our men. We're, we're working on our men. Father in heaven, bless us now as we turn our attention to the text of Scripture. We're looking forward to what you have for us in this message. Swords and lords is my prayer in Jesus' name. Let everyone say amen. Join me with... Uh, Join me in Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. Our sermon is titled Swords and Lords. We are working our way through the gospel of Matthew. We find ourselves here in the 26th of 28 chapters. We are right down to the final chapter in our series, Jesus as Conqueror. And we're going to see today and next week and the following week that Jesus is conqueror in a most unexpected and unanticipated way, an unusual way, an odd way. And our sermon last week was titled, Contrast, Contrast, Contrast. And we looked at several points of of contrast in the stories that Matthew was telling leading into the passion of Jesus' life, into the final hours of Jesus' life. He tells these stories of contrast. Judas as contrasted with the woman that lavishes affection upon Jesus. And, And these stories of of, of intentional contradiction, where one is this way and the other is that way. And that contrast is going to continue today. We, we gave several sort of takeaways last week, three of them, in fact, and we're just going to review them here briefly. Number one, ultimately, God's plans will succeed and the plans of wicked men will fail. Can the church say amen? Absolutely. Jesus was planning, but the religious leaders were planning, and Jesus' plans prevailed. Number two, Ultimately, heartfelt devotion and worship will triumph over false and shallow religion. Can the church say amen to that? Man, that is so great to know that God is not interested just in the show or the picture of religion, but God is interested in a genuine connection with Him, a paternal relationship with Him. And then finally, ultimately, Jesus' death and resurrection will win over prideful hearts and minds. Can the church say amen to that one? Great. And that brings us right up to where we are at today. Matthew chapter 27. Last week, Matthew chapter 26, pardon me. Last week, we made it all the way through verse 35. Today, we're going to go all the way to the end of the chapter, beginning in verse 36. And I want to start by just reading the first half of the second half of Matthew chapter 26. I'm going to read beginning in verse 36 all the way down to about verse 56, just so we get a feel for the shape of what's happening here. And uh, we'll pick it up in verse 36. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. And he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. 
stay here and watch with me. And he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to the disciples, and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, What? What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, a second time, he went away and he prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if this cup cannot pass from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away again, and he prayed the third time, saying the same words. Then he came to his disciples and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Throughout the course of Jesus' ministry, he has repeatedly said, My time has not yet come. My time has not yet come. My time has not yet come. Last week, we saw that Jesus said, My time is near. And this week, Jesus says to his disciples, My time is here. Not merely near. My time is at hand. The betrayer is here. Get up and let us go. Verse 47, and while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, and a great multitude with swords and clubs came from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now his betrayer had given them a sign, and he said, whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him. Immediately he went up to Jesus, and he said, greetings, rabbi, and kissed him. But Jesus said, friend, why have you come? Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. And suddenly one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and cut the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear, struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. But Jesus said to him, put your sword in its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you not think that I can pray to my father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? But how then could the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen this way? In that hour, Jesus said to the multitudes, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I I, I sat daily with you teaching in the temple and you did not seize me then. But all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. In this Christmas season, this is a story that's really kind of on the other end of the life of Jesus. We spend typically and traditionally this Christmas season looking at the manger and less at the cross. We spend time there with the wise men and Mary and Joseph in Bethlehem's manger. In the course of our series, we are finding ourselves at the other end of the Gospel of Matthew. We find ourselves here in the Garden of Gethsemane. The word Gethsemane means olive oil press. The press that was used to extract the oil from the olive, Gethsemane. Jesus here is in the garden of the olive oil press and he himself will be pressed. And his very essence, in the same way that when you squeeze olives, the oil runs from it. Jesus will be so squeezed here, squeezed by divine justice, squeezed by sin, that that the essence of who and what Jesus is, namely love and mercy and compassion and selflessness, will ooze out of him in the same way that oil oozes from olives. Now, last week we noted these these points of contrast, the first five of them, and I mentioned that there were as many as 20 or more. I spent a little more time this week looking for a contrast and was able to identify a full 25 additional points of contrast. These are the five we looked at last week. First of all, we've noted that, that there are two instances of somebody being exceedingly sorrowful. 
Last week we saw that when Jesus said to his disciples, one of you will betray me, the scripture says that the disciples were exceedingly sorrowful. Here in our reading today, we see Jesus stumbling clumsily into the Garden of Gethsemane, and it says, he says, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful. Number two, the disciples were uncertain about the betrayal. Is it I? Is it me? Is it me, Lord? And Jesus was absolutely certain, one of you will betray me. Number three, Jesus' submission to the will of the Father when he said the Son of Man will be betrayed and crucified. Peter's resistant pride when he said this will never happen to you. I will not allow it. Jesus relied on Scripture when he said here in our reading today that, that, that the shepherd will be smitten and the flock will scatter. Peter's reliance and the other disciples' reliance on themselves Finally, Jesus is confident of the resurrection, but the other disciples don't even grasp the resurrection. Of course they don't. They don't even grasp the idea that a Messiah could be killed, as we talked about last week. That was oxymoronic. It was internally incoherent to have a Messiah dying. By definition, Messiahs don't die. They are warriors. They are deliverers. And so not only did the disciples not grasp the resurrection, they were completely incapable of grasping the resurrection. They don't even yet understand the death, but Jesus does. These are the points that we looked at last week. Now, these are all new. Let me just start with the first, or the, the next 10. Based on the reading that we just saw, notice these points of intentional contrast. And there's no doubt in my mind that Matthew has penned the passion of Jesus with these contrasts purposefully in mind. He's drawing your, he wants you to see A and B, this and that, light and dark, Jesus and the others. And notice this one, number six. Jesus is pleading and struggling in prayer, and the disciples are lazily sleeping. That is an impossible-to-miss contrast. Number seven, Jesus has always been there for them, right? In times of where education was needed, where encouragement was needed, where rebuke was needed, where even things like food were needed, Jesus has always been there for his disciples. But here in Gethsemane, we are confronted with the reality that when Jesus is in need of their support, their encouragement, their support, they're not there for him. Number eight, Jesus gave to the disciples the cup of communion. He said, drink this cup. Drink this cup of communion. Drink this Passover cup. But Jesus here in the garden is wrestling with a very different cup. Where they drank the cup of commonality and of communion and of community, Jesus is three times requesting that he not be required to drink the cup of separation, the cup of justice, the cup of wrath. Two cups. Very different. Contrast. Number nine, Jesus says that your spirit is weak, but your flesh is strong. Jesus is having the exact opposite problem. Jesus' spirit is strong, but his flesh, his humanity, is cowering before the sacrifice that is in front of him. He's having the very opposite experience of the disciples who may have wanted to remain up and pray, but their flesh was weak. Probably there are more than a few of us in here who can relate to that. Having a spirit that's desirous, but flesh that is weak. Number 10, the insincere betrayal, the kiss. He who I kiss, I will give a show of affection, but it is only a show of affection. That way you'll be sure you're arresting the right man, Judas says to the mob. I will kiss him and then you'll know. But when, G when Judas comes and offers the kiss, Jesus does not refuse the betrayer's kiss. In fact, not only does he not refuse it, he refers to him with genuineness, with sincerity, as an appeal, friend. What are you doing here, friend? 
This is not insincere. It's, it's, he's, he's not speaking with tongue in cheek. Jesus viewed Judas as a friend. Yes, he was a betrayer. But even here in the crucible of Gethsemane, there is the appeal. Even now, Judas, you can change your mind. Even now, you can change your loyalty. Even now, you can change your orientation. Friends. Continuing on, here's other points of contrast in the reading that we've had so far. Jesus says, well, what are you arresting me for? I have been willing to go all along. He even says to his disciples, wake up, we need to go. They come to violently apprehend somebody who's willing to go. Number 12, swords are drawn. We're going to spend a lot of time on that today. The swords are drawn and Jesus advising is put your swords away. We will return to that point. In fact, it'll be the central point that we'll be on today. Number 13, Jesus exercises loving restraint. When the disciple, it doesn't say in the Gospel of Matthew who it is, but the Gospel of John tells us that it was Peter. When Peter draws his sword, Jesus' response to that is, look, if I wanted to be delivered by violence, I could do it. I could pray to my Father right now and have legions upon legions of angels. So here we see Jesus exercising divine and merciful restraint while Peter is impetuously, violently ready to take action to bring deliverance. Number 14, Jesus remains with the arresting mob, and the passage that we read this morning so far ends with all the disciples fleeing. Jesus remains, they all flee. Jesus had said as much, all of you will be offended and will flee. All of you will deny me. Peter had protested, but even Peter has fled. Jesus is left verily, truly alone. And then finally, number 15, we will return to the contrast a little bit later. The disciples are scattered and the elders are assembled. We didn't read that text, but if you look at verse 37, it says, And those who had laid hold of Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. So one group is scattering and another group is assembling. What I'd like to do, and, and I strongly urge, advise, exhort, Uh, plead, invite you to read the chapter titled Gethsemane in the classic volume on the life of Christ written by Ellen White called Desire of Ages. The Desire of Ages. How many people here have a copy of The Desire of Ages in their home? Okay, I want to give you a little piece of homework. I want you to go home today at some point in your busy Sabbath afternoon activities Find the 20 or 30 minutes that it will take you. Probably not even 30 minutes. It took me about 15 minutes to do it again this morning. And read the chapter titled Gethsemane. Just a single chapter. It's titled Gethsemane. It is probably in the voluminous writings of Ellen White. And I've read hundreds, thousands of pages of her writings. There's no doubt that the chapter that I have read more than any other chapter she has written is this chapter. I read it again this morning. It would be dozens of times, maybe approaching more than a hundred times that I've read this chapter. Something about this chapter just rivets me and grounds me and, and, and roots me in Christ. And as I read it this morning, I thought, man, I wish I could read the whole chapter to the church. I'm not going to make you listen to me read for uninterruptedly for an hour, but I will read you a few choice paragraphs that set the scene. Okay, get the scene in your mind here. What we're going to do is we're going to add a little more texture, a little more depth, a little more dimensionality to the, the rather parsed version that we have in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew's very matter-of-fact. This happened, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened. It's everything that needs to be there is there. But what I love about this section here in Gethsemane, the chapter Gethsemane in Desire of Ages, is that those details are teased out. And I want you just to sort of, in this Christmas season here, as we're often thinking about 
the birth of Jesus. I want these sorrowful, you know, Brittany prayed that beautiful prayer. Thank you, Britt. And you talked about how your heart was heavy. What an appropriate posture to have on the Sabbath that we are looking in Matthew chapter 26 at the Garden of Gethsemane, because Jesus' heart is heavy. And I want that heaviness, I want that sobriety to rest upon you as you just listen to a few paragraphs here that that capture the essence of the scene. And what was to be gained by this sacrifice? How hopeless appeared the guilt and ingratitude of men In its hardest features, Satan pressed the situation upon Jesus. Ah, the people who claim to be above all others in temporal spiritual advantages, they have rejected you. They are seeking to destroy you. The foundation, the center, the seal of the promises made to them as a peculiar people, the Jewish people. Of your own disciples who listen to your instruction. One of your own disciples who listen to your instruction and who has been foremost in church activities, he will betray you. One of your most zealous followers will deny you. All will forsake you. Christ's whole being abhorred these thoughts. That those whom he had undertaken to serve and save, those whom he loved so much would unite in the plots of Satan, this pierced his soul. The conflict was terrible. Its measure was the guilt of his nation, of his accusers and betrayer. The guilt of a world lying in wickedness. The sins of men weighed heavily upon Christ. And the sense of God's wrath against sin was crushing out his life. Gethsemane. Pressing. The human heart longs for sympathy in suffering. This longing Christ felt to the very depths of his being. In the supreme agony of soul, he came to his disciples with a yearning desire to hear some words of comfort from those whom he had so often blessed and comforted and shielded in sorrow and sadness. The one who had always had words of sympathy for them was now suffering superhuman agony, and he longed to know that they were praying for him and for themselves. How dark seemed to be the horror of sin. Terrible was the temptation to let the human race bear the consequences of its own guilt while he would stand innocent before God. If he could only know that his disciples understood and appreciated this, he would have been strengthened. Turning away, Jesus sought again his retreat and fell prostrate, overcome by the horror of a great darkness. The humanity of the Son of God trembled in that trying hour. He prayed not now for his disciples that their faith might not fail, but for his own tempted and agonized soul, the awful moment had come. The awful moment had come. He was, in the words of the prophet, now numbered with the transgressors. That moment which was to decide the destiny of the world, the fate of humanity, trembled in the balance. Christ might even now refuse to drink the cup that had been apportioned to guilty man. It was not yet too late for him to turn. To wipe, he might wipe the bloody sweat from his brow and leave man to perish in his iniquity. He might say, let the transgressor receive the penalty of his sin and I will go back to my father. Will the son of God drink the bitter cup of humiliation and agony? Will the innocent suffer the consequences of the curse of sin to save the guilty? The words fall tremblingly from the pale lips of Jesus. Oh, my father, if this cup may not pass from me except I drink it, your will be done. She does a marvelous job of capturing the the pathos of the moment, the the sense of 
of despair and terror in that moment when Jesus is looking for even a glimmer of encouragement from those closest to him, and there is no encouragement on the horizon. There is no bright light. There is no promise. There is no cause for optimism. Jesus in his emotions, Jesus in his feelings, Jesus in his psychology is facing a darkness and a blackness that no human being has ever faced. People have endured tremendous trial and tragedy, difficulty up to this point, adversity, yes, certainly, up to that point and since that time. But what Jesus is engaging here is not merely physical pain that will bring about a bodily sleep. Jesus is engaging spiritual death. When he stumbled clumsily into the garden, he said, my soul is dying. My soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to the point of death. Jesus here is drinking not the cup of communion, not the cup of community, not the cup of oneness. He is drinking the cup of separation. And no human being other than Jesus has ever experienced it to date. The only one. And here in Matthew chapter 26, we come face to face with a God who is conquering in a most unexpected and strange way. When you read this passage, as I, as I often do when I'm studying, I look for that one point or those two points, something, what, where's the pivot point? What is the, what is the theme? What is the narrative on which this section of Scripture tilts? And for me, as I studied, in fact, I knew this all the way going back to last week, that, that this word sword comes up again and again and again. I think the fulcrum in Matthew chapter 26 is this idea of sword. In fact, note with me again. Verse 47, they come to him with swords and clubs. Verse 51, Peter takes out his sword and strikes the servant of the high priest and cuts off his ear. Verse 52, Jesus said, put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Verse 55, Jesus asks incredulously, have you come out to me as against a robber with swords? This word is just like Matthew's like sword, 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 sword. Okay, Matthew, we get it. You're talking about swords, and we get that. What's the takeaway lesson? There is so much going on here. When Jesus says, put your sword in its place, he adds this little axiomatic, this little proverb. He says, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. He's stating a kind of proverbial truism here that violence begets violence. Put your sword away, Peter. Violence begets violence. Swords beget swords. Guns beget guns. Put your sword away. Because if we're going to go about this in the, in, the, in the motif of violence and with the use of violence and with the technique of violence, violence will be the inevitable consequence. Put your sword away. Jesus here with this simple axiom, this simple truism, is striking a death blow to what has been called by some the myth of redemptive violence. The myth of redemptive violence is more or less the theme of every action and adventure movie or any uh, uh, most novels, at least conflict novels that have been written. Right? Whether it's Superman or Batman or Spider-Man or James Bond or Jason Bourne or whoever it might be. What we have in these movies, what we have in these modern narratives, and ancient as well, ancient and modern narratives, is this idea that the bad guy is using violence, the bad guy has access to weapons, the bad guy has plans, but the good guy also has access to violence and plans and weapons. And the good guy triumphs over the bad guy by use of violence. And woohoo! James Bond wins, Jason Bourne wins, Spider-Man wins, Superman wins. Violence beats violence. 
It's a myth. The myth of redemptive violence, the idea that any good could come ultimately of violence. Notice I said ultimately. When Peter takes out his sword, he's just ready to try and do what people have historically done and have continued to do since this day. And that is to meet violence with violence. Eye, eye, tooth, tooth, sword, sword, gun, gun. And Jesus, in the midst of his arrest and betrayal, he states this little axiom, he that lives by the sword, dies by the sword, put it away. Peter, there is a war that's going on here. There is a conflict that's going on here. There is a battle that's going on here. But this is not a battle that could be won with metal. This is not a battle that could be won with a blade. Put your sword away. Going all the way back to the very scripture that Jesus had quoted. In verse 31, then Jesus said to them, all of you will be made to stumble because of me tonight. For it is written, he then quotes from Zechariah chapter 13, which says, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Take a look at the full passage of Zechariah chapter 13 verse 7 on the screen here. Look at the full passage. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. Awake, O sword. This is an internal dialogue within the Godhead. This is, this is Father, Son, and Spirit having an internal and divine dialogue. And within the context of that internal Trinitarian dialogue, these words are spoken. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man, capital man, that's Jesus, who is my companion. When Jesus refers to God, when he addresses God here in the Garden of Gethsemane, he addresses him as Father. My Father, let this cup pass. My Father, let this cup pass. Father, Father. This is the language of fraternity. This is the language of companionship. This is the language of communion. This is the language of love. And so here in this prophecy, awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion, says the Lord of hosts. Then the portion that Jesus quotes, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. It is not by accident that the word sword comes up again and again and again in Matthew chapter 26. Matthew is purposefully, perhaps in a nuanced fashion, but no doubt purposefully drawing your attention to the futility of swords. A sword can't do what needs to be done. There is a sword that will fall. There is a sword that will, that will strike its mark, but it will not be the sword of Peter cutting off somebody's ear. It will be the sword of divine justice that will fall. And here is the great unexpected plot twist. Here's the story that no one would have written. The sword of divine justice will fall on the divine. Not on the deserving but on the divine. In the words of a fellow preacher and, and a good friend Dwight Nelson, Jesus is the God-forsaken God. There's something that's happening within the inner Trinitarian community here. Within the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, there is an agreement that a sword will fall. There is an agreement that there will be some measure of violence, but that will not be a violence external to God, a violence external to the Trinity. The violence will fall from within the Trinity. Quoting again from Desire of Ages, Christ is now standing in a different attitude from that which he had ever stood before in Gethsemane. His suffering can best be described by the words of the prophet. She then quotes, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man that is my fellow, says the Lord of hosts. As the substitute and surety for sinful man, Christ was suffering under divine justice. The wages of sin is death. 
The penalty of transgression and of iniquity is death. It is separation. It is the absence of life. And Jesus will now suffer under that. She continues, he saw what justice meant. He had been an intercessor for others, but now he longed to have someone interceding for himself. We've mentioned that next year, by the grace of God, we'll be studying in the book of Revelation. Right at the heart of the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 13, we find this fascinating little truism, which is really quite interesting because Matthew and John are different biblical traditions. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you have what are referred to as the synoptic tradition. That's what theologians say. Synoptic comes from the word meaning same sight, synoptic. And that's why Matthew and Mark and Luke have a similar kind of feel. But John's off over here kind of playing by himself. He writes differently. His themes are different. His chronology is different. John is kind of in his own tradition, his own. It it doesn't fit nicely and neatly in with Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which is why it makes it so fascinating that John, who also wrote the book of Revelation, brings this same truism to bear on this idea of violence. Look at what it says. Revelation chapter 13, verse 9. This is just after this terrible, marauding, violent, antichrist beast is seen. I mean, this beast is a piece of work. He's a lion. He's a bear. He's a leopard. He's a dragon. He's a violent piece of work. And in response, John's response as he sees in cinematic vision this violent, marauding beast, then this comes. If anyone has an ear, what that means in the book of Revelation is listen up and use wisdom. Spiritual wisdom, more than human wisdom, not just education in terms of a PhD, but spiritual insight. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. He who leads into captivity, this violent, marauding Antichrist beast, will go into captivity. He who kills with the sword will be killed with the sword. This is almost the very same truism that Jesus utters in the Garden of Gethsemane. Peter, put your sword away because those that live by the sword die by the sword. Here, when speaking of this marauding anti-Christian beast, he that kills will be killed. He that does violence will have violence done to him. To put it in more modern language, we could say he that lives by the machine gun will die by the machine gun. He that lives by the revolver will die by the revolver. He that lives by the drone will die by the drone. Jesus here is taking issue with violence as a principle that can supposedly, allegedly bring about some redemptive or positive end. Jesus says to Peter, put your sword away. Friends, I want to tell you today, I wrote a whole book about this titled God in Pain. God's heart is to receive violence and pain, not to inflict it. Just let the gravitas of that simple sentence rest upon your mind today. If you were to dig, if you were to mine, if you were to go deep into the heart of God, you would never find a place in the heart of God where he enjoyed or where he desired or where he hoped to inflict violence and pain on another creature. But what you would find saturative in the heart of God, what you would find saturative in what makes God God is a desire himself to receive pain and to receive violence so long as it can benefit somebody else. God is not in the habit of inflicting externally to himself, violence. That's not what makes God God. It's not who and what he is. In fact, that's the very thing that Jesus says when he says to Peter, are you kidding? Don't you think that it is within the resources of omnipotence right now to pray and God would send me thousands of angels? A violent deliverance is an option available to me. 
I do not need your sword, Peter, surprising though that may be to you. A violent deliverance is available to me. Which raises the question, if a a violent deliverance is available to God, why doesn't he access it? Because that's not who he is. That's That's not what's in his heart. Peter, put your sword away. They that live by the sword will die by the sword. In the Gospel of John, Jesus had said something that was very interesting, and I want to draw your attention in a a bit of a philosophical exploration here. I want to ask you a question. Jesus said that that Satan, Satan, was a murderer from the beginning. Which is quite interesting because when you read the actual rebellion of Satan, he doesn't commit murder. His, the, the, the initial outbreak of conflict, the initial outbreak of hostility in heaven was not that there was a murder. It wasn't like the board game Clue, you know, who did it? Was it Colonel Mustard in the library with the candlestick? There, there wasn't a mystery of murder in heaven. There was a rebellion over governance. There was a rebellion over principles. There was a controversy over ideas. So where does Jesus get off saying, is Jesus wrong to say that Satan was a murderer from the beginning? He wasn't a murderer from the beginning. But Jesus could see that while not all sin is murder, there are other kinds of sins. All sin is murderous in its intent. I want to say that again. While not all sin is murder, all sin is murderous in its intent because ultimately sin elevates me over and above and over and against you. And so Jesus could say with absolute philosophical integrity and, 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 and clarity, he was murdering from the beginning, not because he murdered, but because the germ, because the embryo of murder was planted with that first sin, which raises the question, if Satan was a murderer from the beginning, who did he first murder? Yeah, I'm hearing a few people saying Jesus, and that would be the correct answer, which is why we also encounter really strange verses like this, also in the book of Revelation, giving you a little bit of a broader picture here as we're going to drop back into Matthew chapter 26 momentarily. The Bible introduces Jesus in Matthew chapter 13. By the way, you'll notice where this is. Matthew chapter 13, verse 8, it says, Jesus Christ is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Then the very next two verses are the verses that we read earlier about the futility of violence. You lead into captivity, you'll go into captivity. You kill with the sword, you'll be killed with the sword. You kill with the gun, you'll be killed with the gun. You kill with the drone, you'll be killed with the drone. So in the immediate context of the futility of violence, the myth of redemptive violence, it says that Jesus was the lamb slain from the very beginning. Well, now we're beginning to put two pieces together. Satan is a murderer from the beginning. Jesus is slain from the beginning. Who was murdered? The answer is God himself. The very principles, embryonic though they be, nucleic though they be, the very principles that were embedded within Satan's rebellion would eventually bring about the death, the murder, the destruction of all who disagreed with him. It was the total and profound, perfect elevation of self over and against others, which is the exact opposite of what we see in the heart of God, which is the diminishment of self for the benefit and blessing of others. Revelation chapter 5, verse 6, when Jesus is seen, we're going to spend a lot of time on this next year, when Jesus is seen in the definitive throne vision, the throne room vision in the, gospel, in the book of Revelation, it is also a gospel, the gospel of Revelation, 
When Jesus is seen, it's fascinating the symbolic imagery that John sees Jesus in. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne, that's the throne of the universe, and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain. So here's the throne. John sees the throne. Peter doesn't see this. The disciples don't see this in the Garden of Gethsemane, but John will see it. And when he sees the divine throne, he sees the Father seated on the throne. It was a co-throne. It was a a, a throne for two. He sees the Father seated on a throne, and he sees Jesus seated on the throne. But in symbolic vision, he sees Jesus as a slain lamb. Now, there's just a fascinating point here that you just have to hear. It is so profound. Satan is the lord of the sword. He's the one who says violence for violence Hostility for hostility, sword for sword. He's the one that, that, that loves movies like the Bond series and the Batman, Spider-Man, Superman series and the Star Trek and Star Wars series. He loves this idea that we are continuing to imbibe as entertainment the myth of redemptive violence, that all it's really going to take is for the good guys to show up with bigger weapons. He loves this idea, and it's just built into the very fiber and fabric of not only our entertainment, but it's built into the very way that we do life. Eye, eye, tooth, tooth, violence, violence. Responding in kind. Satan is the, he's the Lord of this way of thinking. He's the Lord of the sword. I love the way that Richard Bauckham puts it in the theology of the book of Revelation. When the slaughtered lamb is seen... In the midst of the divine throne in heaven, when that's seen, the meaning is that Christ's sacrificial death belongs to the way God rules the world. Let that settle upon you. The thing that was seen on the throne, what is the throne for? A throne is for ruling. A throne is for reigning. A throne is is where governance happens. And what Bauckham says here is a point that's so obvious you you could miss it. When a slain lamb is seen sitting on the throne, the message is that this is how God rules. God does not rule by strength. He does not rule by power. He does not rule by violence. He reigns by transparency. He reigns by vulnerability. What could possibly be more vulnerable than a lamb? I tell you, there's something going on here, something deep, something amazing. One more Uh, theological quotation here, then we'll jump back into Matthew chapter 26, Sigve Tonstad in his profound book, Saving God's Reputation. When Revelation says that no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it, there was that scroll and nobody could open it, but then this lamb, this slain lamb shows up. Notice what Tonstad says, it does not only signify that other potential candidates for the task of opening the scroll lack the lamb's pedigree for this task in an ontological sense. It's not simply saying that Jesus is the only one that can do it because he's God. Rather, it means that absolutely no one else would have solved the cosmic conflict this way. Even the angels wouldn't have thought of this. In fact, no one in the universe would have thought that the best way to defeat a violent person, defeat, to defeat a, a, a violent revolution, to defeat a murderer, is to become the victim of murder and the victim of violence so that it can be on display and then ch- people can choose their loyalty. This is the story that no one could have written because it's not in the heart of humanity to, to submit ourselves to the injustice and cruelty and violence of others. It's in our heart to respond in kind, just as Peter did, to take out our sword. By the way, probably you don't own a sword, but we use violence in other ways. 
We use violence in the way that we talk about people that have hurt us. We respond in kind. Somebody was cruel to me, I will be crueler still. Somebody gossiped about me, I will, ret- I will respond in kind. Somebody was unkind to me, I will be unkind. Somebody ignored me, I will ignore. Somebody mistreated me, I will mistreat. Whether or not the sword is physical is quite beside the point. The whole principle that you could actually bring some positive end, some redemptive end, some good end out of responding to cruelty, oppression, violence, or hostility in kind is the very thing that Jesus is taking aim at when he says to Peter, put your sword away because some battles cannot be won with violence and cruelty and hostility. Some battles, the most important battles, can only be won by submitting yourself to violence, not by inflicting it. And friends, I want to remind you again, what we are probing here is the very heart of God. This is not a fascinating little philosophical or theological point. What we are probing is what makes God, God. And as we plumb into the depths and find out who and what he is, we find not a desire to inflict violence, but a willingness to receive it. The cross belongs to the way God rules the world. The cross is not merely an instance in the great history of God. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Remember that one time that Jesus hung on a cross? Remember when God hung on a cross? That's who he is. Somebody might legitimately ask the question, what is God doing on a cross? And the answer would be being himself. What is God doing on a cross? He's being himself. Vulnerable, merciful, forgiving, selfless, magnanimous. He's being God. This is not an instance. This is not a mere moment in the psyche of God. This is who God is. In the inimitable words of Ellen White, hanging upon the cross, Christ was the gospel. He was the gospel. Contrast, contrast, contrast. No one would have written this story. No one would have told this story. You win by violence. Let's read now the latter half and we'll wrap this up. Beginning in verse 57, or beginning in verse 47. And while he was still speaking, oh no, verse 57. Verse 57. And those who laid hold of Jesus led him away to Caiaphas and the high priest where the scribes and the elders were assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance to the high priest's courtyard. And he went in and he sat with the servants to see the end. Now the chief priests and the elders and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they they found none. But at last two false witnesses came forward and they said, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. And the high priest arose and said to him, Do you answer nothing? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said, and this is the second time that we encounter this. We're going to spend our next week on this. It is as you say. Judas had said, Hey, am I the betrayer? It is as you say. Pilate will say, are you the king of the Jews? It is as you say. We'll come back to that next week. It is as you say. Nevertheless, I say to you, after this, you will see the Son of Man, that Danielic figure, sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes in an act of symbolic indignation, saying, he has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look now, you have heard his blasphemy. What do you think? And they answered and said, he deserves to die. 
And they spat in his face and they beat him and others struck him with the palms of their hands. And they said, prophesy to us, Christ, who hit you? Now Peter sat outside in the courtyard and a servant girl came to him and said, hey, you were also with that Jesus of Galilee. But he denied it before them all and he said, I don't even know what you're saying. And when he had gone out to the gateway, another girl saw him and said to those who were there, hey, this fellow, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. But again, he denied it. I don't know the guy. And a little later, those who stood by came up to Peter and said, surely you are one of them. Your speech betrays you. Then he began to curse and swear. And he said, I don't know the man. And immediately a rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the word of Jesus who had said to him, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So he went out and wept bitterly. Notice these final 10 points of contrast here. They'll jump off the page. Jesus is silent while there are many false witnesses and false words. Contrast. Jesus tells the truth, but he is accused of telling blasphemy. By the way, for those of you that are a little deeper in your Bible study, here's a fascinating point. Jesus is refer, refers to himself here as the Son of Man, which is lifted straight out of Daniel chapter 7. And the chief antagonist in Daniel chapter 7, the, the primary uh, uh, crime that he commits is to speak blasphemy against God. So there's this crazy, wild little thing that's going on here where in the context of Daniel chapter 7, Jesus is accused of blasphemy. Number 18, they said, he deserves death. But the truth is, is that all except him deserve death since he was sinless. Number 19, we see Jesus' humility as contrasted with the provocative words and actions of the high priest and the accusers. We see Jesus inside, we see Peter outside. Matthew makes the point, Peter was outside. Jesus was inside, Peter was outside. Jesus is unmovable before the assembly while Peter denies Jesus before two girls. 22, Jesus tells the truth under oath. When he's placed under oath by the high priest, he tells the truth. You will see the Son of Man after this, returning in power. Peter denies and lies also with an oath. Jesus is taking an oath. Peter's taking an oath, but two very different oaths. Jesus quotes quotes Scripture to stand firm. Peter denies with cursing and swearing. Jesus weeps for others in the Garden of Gethsemane. Peter weeps for himself. Jesus had said the rooster will crow, and in fact, the rooster does crow. I mentioned that I did something. Last week, I mentioned that I had done something on that Thursday before that I had said I wouldn't do. I went and I saw the movie Hacksaw Ridge again. I saw it the first time, and I absolutely loved it. I mean, I would give it a 9.5 out of 10, maybe a 10 out of 10. I don't know how I would improve it. It was absolutely fantastic. But I had thought to myself, a little too violent a little too much blood, a little too much gore. So I saw it once, it was really good, and I don't need to see it again. But when I was approached by my good friends, Shannon Taki, and they said, hey, we want to see that movie, will you go with us? They were a little disappointed when they heard that I'd already seen it, but I said, no, 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 I'll go again. And so I went with them, and it was in that movie, the second time, I, I was able to not just experience it, because I knew what was coming, I was able to anticipate and to process what was happening in front of me. Now, I do not know, if what I'm going to share with you here, two scenes... I do not know if Mel Gibson intended this. I don't know if the scriptwriters intended this. My hunch is that they didn't. 
I don't know if they intend the level of theological depth that I'm going to share with you here in just a moment. But whether they intended it or not, it is there because it's, it's intrinsic to the story of Desmond Doss. Because the story of Desmond Doss is itself a reflection of the magnanimity and mercy of Jesus Christ. So I don't know if the script writers intended this, but what I'm going to share with you right here is phenomenal. So the first scene, uh, the two scenes I want to share with you. The first scene is one in which uh, this actor here uh, who plays uh, Captain Glover. He's the captain over Desmond Doss's, uh, you know, whatever it is, regimen there. And they're in a foxhole together. They've gone into that first wave of battle, and it's as horrific as you can imagine. And there's blood and smoke and, and bodies, and it's just as, as, as confronting as you can imagine. And I think that Mel Gibson and his... His filmmaking team there did a fantastic job of creating a sense of the, the absolute bleakness and blackness of war. And the first day has passed, and now they're in a foxhole at night. And they know that there's likely going to be another attack the next day. And so, as, as you know, uh, um, Providence would have it or as serendipity would have it, Doss ends up in a foxhole with the captain, the very captain, Captain Glover here, who had tried to get him out of the regiment because he thought he would be a man of cowardice. And in fact, Doss has shown himself to be a man of tremendous courage and bravery. And they're in there, and, you know, they've both barely dodged death. Many of their other compatriots are, you know, rotting in the dirt at that very moment. And Glover says to, to Desmond, you need to get some sleep. You need to get some sleep. And so Desmond goes to sleep. And what you don't know is that what happens next is a dream, but the way that the movie tellers sort of play it out is it's actually happening, and they hear a noise, and Desmond looks up, and here is a Japanese soldier, or a series of Japanese soldiers that have come right up to the edge of their foxhole, and Desmond stands up, and Captain Glover stands up, and the rifle is right there, and he gets shot. Bam, bam, bam. You don't know it's a dream yet until the very next scene, (gasps) Desmond sits up. He sits up in the foxhole. <gasps> you can imagine. I had a nightmare after watching the movie. The first time I saw the movie, I had a nightmare that night that somebody threw a grenade in my general direction and I couldn't get away from it. So you can imagine if you actually went through the experience, that would be like a nightmare. So, so in the midst of this experience, Desmond says, <gasps> and Captain Glover, who was there still awake on guard, he says, oh, you've, you've had a dream. You've had a nightmare. And then Desmond says, I, I dream that the... The soldiers came right to the edge of our foxhole and, and, and there was nothing I could do. And at this point, Glover's gun is leaning just between Doss and Glover as they're sitting in the foxhole. And, and Glover says, the, the captain says to Doss, he says, the rifle is right here. In fact, I've got it right here on the screen. There's a rifle right next to you. It doesn't bite, he says. And then this. Desmond's response, yeah, it does. Look around you. Look around. It does too bite. It bites. It's bitten everyone. We're here because people have taken up rifles. We're here because people are inflicting violence upon one another. It doesn't bite, Desmond, just pick it up. It's not a snake. It's not a scorpion. It doesn't bite. And Desmond's response is perfect. And I don't know if the script writers intended this, but the, lep- the, 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 the level of theological depth here is profound. He says, yes, it does. Look around you. This is simply a modern recapitulation of what Jesus said to Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane. Put your sword away. If you pick up the sword, it will bite you. 
The sword doesn't only kill them. The sword kills you. And it doesn't just kill you physically. It kills a part of you when you kill them. So that's sort of scene number one. The second scene is, there actually is a scene, and it might be difficult to see there. If you could bring the lights down just a little bit, Nate. There actually is a scene, the only scene in, in the movie where Desmond touches a gun. He refused to touch the gun. If you've seen the movie, he had had a, a situation in his, in his younger years where he had picked up a gun and he'd almost killed his father. And so he refused not only to shoot a gun, he refused to touch a gun. But in this particular scene, he has gone back into the field of battle and he has found another one of his superiors, Sergeant Howell. And Sergeant Howell is there. He's been shot up in his legs. He's unable to walk. And the Japanese are encroaching. They're coming very close. And in this moment, they've got to get moving. They've got to get moving right now. And and Doss is committed to helping Sergeant Howell and, and, you know, getting the morphine into him and getting him out of there. But it's dangerous. And they build, you know, the tension as they do in film. Of course, the tension in the actual battlefield would have been infinitely greater still. But at just this moment, as the Japanese are coming and, and Howell is you know, incapacitated from just spinning around because he's injured, he throws his gun to Desmond and Desmond catches it. And it's this like crucible moment in the whole movie where here he is on the field of battle. People are approaching like, what will he do now? The gun is in his hand. The enemy are coming like... Do you stand by your convictions now? Do you really believe that thing now? And and in this moment, he holds the gun. And then just as quick as a flash, he finds a, a piece of like tarp that was there from one of the tents. He takes the gun and he rolls the gun up into the tarp. He spins the, the sergeant around onto the tarp and then uses this gun almost as like a, 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 a sled as, as, the, as the bar of the sled, and he pulls the sergeant out while under fire from the Japanese. And I tell you, there's something really, this is a scene, this is a picture of that scene there, it's difficult to see. But this is him, you can see he's got the gun behind him, and he's dragging, you can't see the sergeant because he's blocked uh, by Desmond, but he's using the gun, and here again, I do not know if this is intended, but don't miss this. Doss uses the gun, an instrument designed to bring death, as an instrument to bring deliverance and healing. When it's placed in his hand, the question is, will he use the gun for its intended purpose? No, he doesn't. He switches it around. He uses it as as part of a stretcher, and he tows the man out by using the gun. Friends, listen, that is a portrait. That is a picture of what Jesus did with the cross. The cross was designed to bring death and pain and horror and humiliation to the enemies. And Jesus took the cross not to use it for its intended purpose on others, but he took that instrument of torture and pain and he totally repurposed it. He allowed himself to go on the cross so that this instrument of torture, this instrument of pain, this instrument of death became the very means and vehicle of deliverance and of life and of salvation. Jesus did not come to torture, but to be tortured. Let's land this. Profoundly, when Jesus is seen with a sword in the book of Revelation, you might say, hey, but doesn't Jesus have a sword in the book of Revelation? He does, but it's not in his hand. He's depicted on three occasions in the book of Revelation with a sword coming out of his mouth. That is to say, his words. His words, the truth and love and mercy. So who is your Lord? And what is his sword? 
Is it the sword of truth? Or is it the sword of violence? Is it the sword of revenge? Is it the sword of getting back at somebody who has wronged you? Friends, when we plumb and we dig into the very heart of God, what we find is God is not violent, but he is willing to receive violence. He does not want to inflict pain, but he is willing himself to be placed in pain. One of the great lines from the movie Hacksaw Ridge is this line where when they're still back at boot camp, one of the seniors, I think it was Sergeant Howell of Doss, looks at him and says, you don't win wars by giving your life. According to God, apparently, you do. Let us pray. Father in heaven, Today has been a day of testimony. It's been a day of thanksgiving. Today has been a day where we have registered your faithfulness and our trust and belief. Father, you have delivered from snake bites. You have literally delivered babies. You have delivered from cancer. You have delivered even from the death of a spouse. Father, We heard testimonies today and our hearts were warmed within us. You are a God of deliverance. You are a God of healing. You are a God of restoration. You are a God of putting things back together. You are a God of mercy. And Father, today I pray that in ways great and small, we would be putting our swords away. That we would be sheathing our swords And relying on the one true sword. The sword that truly cuts and truly heals. The sword of the word of God. Father, help us to look to you and to believe that you really are that good. You really are that beautiful. And then, Father, win our hearts so that we will not be tempted to respond as Peter did in kind So that we will not meet violence with violence and gossip with gossip and cruelty with cruelty and meanness with meanness and neglect with neglect. But Father, teach us, as Jesus did, to respond with love and kindness and magnanimity and mercy when people treat us ways that are less than loving. Father, I pray for our homes, I pray for our workplaces, I pray for our families. May we not only read the story of Jesus, may we live it, may we embody it by the Spirit. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Let everyone say, amen. God bless you all. Happy Sabbath. We'll see you next week. Hey, greetings from beautiful and sunny Kingscliff, Australia. I want to take just a moment of your time, first of all, to thank you for tuning in watching the program. I trust it was a blessing to you and your soul, drawing you closer to God and His will for your life. I also want to let you know that we are planning a significant expansion of our existing media ministry here at the Kingscliff Church. To find out more about this expansion and how you can get involved, go to bringitkingscliff.com. You can go either to the homepage or to the Our Gifts page to find out how you can come alongside us and support, not just with your viewership, but also financially and with your prayers. Hey, thanks again so much for watching and take care.